Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Hey, let me see if this still works. I'm not sure how it works anymore or if you will even remember, but I'm going to try. You ready? I say, God is good, and you say, you remember. And all the time, you remember how it works. I don't know if you grew up with that kind of thing being thrown around in church services or in your life. I didn't grow up with that practice in the church that I grew up in. It put me in some funny situations from time to time. I remember an Easter at a church I served at before coming to Legacy years and years ago on an Easter Sunday morning. I was greeting at the door and people were walking in and over and over people would walk up and say, God is good. And I'd go, yeah. <laughs> and one man came up and he was probably in his 70s and he walks up and he goes, God is good. And I said, high five. And he just looked at me and said, son, come here. And he walked me over to the side and said, I'm going to explain something to you. This is how it goes. I say, God is good all the time. God is good, right. But I wonder sometimes, I wonder if we believe it. And maybe maybe it's not the right question or the fair question. Maybe the question isn't, do we believe it? But do we feel that way all of the time? Do we always feel like God is good all of the time? Like when we lose a loved one, or when we've been praying for someone to experience healing, but they aren't healed, or when it feels like all of life is crashing down on us and all around us, things aren't going the way we anticipated or expected, can we be honest about our real feelings in those moments and at the same time still believe in the goodness of God? I think there's a temptation in Christianity, specifically in modern, Western, maybe American Christianity for you and I just to put on a happy face. Do you get that sense ever? Like, like one of these life-altering, ground-shaking moments happens in your life, and you're in it, and you've got all the feels, and then somebody well-meaning, a Christian, maybe even a pastor walks up to you and says, well, you know, it's all a part of God's plan for you. And maybe, maybe they're right, maybe they are, and, and possibly this is true, but that's not what I want to hear right now. And yet, they say it, and what do I do? I put on a happy face, I say, you're right, hallelujah, right? And I've wondered about this, and it's interesting, as we've been making our way through Romans 8, all we've seen so far are these incredible declarations of good news. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We've seen that. We've seen that the Christian has the Holy Spirit, the very presence and power of God with us, dwelling with us helping us to fight a murderous war against our own sins. He's with us, reassuring us of God's faithful love and care as a father cares for a child. We learned last week that if you're in Christ, you have a new and better identity in Him than anyone could ever say anything about you. You have a new place of belonging with Him. You have a new experience with God where you experience His care and His welcome and His love for you as an individual And we have a new and a wonderful, a wonderful destiny ahead for us as God's children. All good stuff. And then you move to the next section in Romans 8, and it's all about groaning. It's about groaning. What I want to talk today about with you is how do we live in the dichotomy of the goodness of God and at the same time, groaning. I want to talk to you about today, but before we dive into the text, I want to invite a friend up, Anne-Marie, if you want to join me for just a second. Many of you, most of you probably know Anne-Marie Bowen. Anne-Marie and her family have been at Legacy for a long time. They have served in, in many places all over the church. Brent is on the soundboard today. Sometimes Maddie is singing. Peter sometimes runs lights. I mean, like, like if there's a hurricane, we're calling them, and they are going to do everything, and I'll just show up. But Anne-Marie, thank you for joining me today. How long have you guys been here at Legacy? About 19 years. I 19. Oh, that's awesome. Turn 18. I'm going to grab you a different mic real quick if I can find one. They're all gone. Here it is. I got you, Dustin. I'm good. I'm good. 
Let's try this one. And this one is banished, bad mic. You're not allowed to be here anymore, okay? 19 years. years. You were pregnant with Maddie when you guys got here. She's graduating this year, which is scary and exciting. You guys have been life group leaders for a long time. Yeah, almost that long. Almost that long, and we're grateful for that. And Anne-Marie is a licensed professional counselor, a therapist, who her convictions, her relationship with Jesus, her sound doctrine and prayer in every way fuels her counseling as ministry. And one of the things that I've been so impressed with Anne-Marie about is how she thinks biblically through the real-life stuff that we face. And a couple of weeks ago, I called you, and I asked you this question. I'll ask you because I want, I want them to hear. Do you think, and why, if so, Christians today here are tempted to just put on a happy face? Is that something you see and experience? I definitely see it, and I see a lot in my office the effects of that, like what, okay. what happens down the road when we do that for too long. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different reasons why we do that, um, and some of that's going to be very individual to the person, but I definitely think some common themes is there's a lot of pressure in Christian community as well as in the secular culture at large that we think or we get the message it's better to be happy mm. it's you know be positive that you know have the joy of the Lord that um, don't worry about anything and I mean so we can have you know secular sayings or Christian truth that we kind of interpret as meaning I should be happy all the time mm-hmm. um, I think we also um, it's natural to um, Sometimes we're uncomfortable even with the idea of really being honest with ourselves about our yeah. own pain. It's easier in the short, I would say in the short term, um, to, to just to be happy, to ignore pain in our lives, to ignore hurt in our lives, to ignore worries and fears in our lives. And, um, and when it comes to being with other people, I, it's, it's uncomfortable. I mean, it takes vulnerability to admit I'm struggling. And, and to, you know, your example earlier, we get this message like from the pastor of, oh, it's part of God's plan. And, and, um, and there's a pressure in that. And to really dig in and say, I'm hurting more, takes a lot of vulnerability when you're met with that kind of messaging. And so all of that together kind of leads to this um, thing, the term that we use for that kind of in, in my field is spiritual bypassing, right. which is this idea that I can have something I'm really struggling with and and what we know is that pain and grief, and I know part of the passage you're going to look at today talks about this, is those are things we have to walk through. And that's part of our spiritual journey. That's part of human journey of living in a fallen world is walking through hurts and pains in our lives. And, but we can take biblical truth and, use, and ideas and use those things more like platitudes. So they're mm-hmm. true statements. We kind of throw them at our pain, and it, the result is instead of walking through our pain, we sort of side skirt around it. And that's that idea of the spiritual bypassing. So that can look like things like saying, um, you know, maybe I have a really deep loss I'm working through, maybe the end of a relationship or a disappointment or something like that. And instead of really letting myself feel the pain of that or, or walk in Christian community through the pain of that, I say things like, oh, I should have the joy of the Lord. He, you know, he, he works all things together for good. It's, it's, it'll be great. And, but notice what you're doing there is you're, even though you're saying something true, you're not really walking through the pain or letting yeah. God walk through that pain with you. Because you, you taught me this term spiritual bypassing, and I went and I was, I was reading more up on it, and I read this. Spiritual bypassing is a way of hiding behind spirituality or spiritual practices. This was what was interesting to me. It said it prevents people from acknowledging what they're feeling and it creates distance. It distances themselves from themselves, from others. And I'm curious, it didn't say this, but do you think that also it can create a distance between me and God if I'm practicing habitually spiritual bypassing? Absolutely. How absolutely. So? And, and, and oftentimes we're confused by that. Like, we, okay. they, you know, if we're really honest with ourselves and the depth of our pain we know when we have Bible verses, we know truth. God's near to the brokenhearted. I can know that in my head, but if I'm not really walking through my pain, the effect unintentionally, we do this unconsciously. I know this stuff. I have, mm-hmm. I can fall into doing this myself. Um, it's like we're leaving God over here. And if, if, if God, God is near to our broken heart, but I'm over here telling myself I need to be joyful and putting on a happy face. And so I'm, I have this disconnect from God and it creates confusion. Well, you said we do it unknowingly sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Part of it, is it true that you think we're culturally conditioned? That's why it's somewhat unknowing. We're kind of culturally conditioned even in the church mm-hmm. to not be people who expose weakness and struggle. 
Why, why is that, and what's, what's the danger of it? The, so, I mean, I, there's, you know, we could come up with lots of possible reasons. I, I think the fast pace of life that we live in in this modern age doesn't, you know, doesn't help because it's, it's you know, we're always on to the next thing, and yeah. some of this is slow work, um, walking through pain and difficulties. Um, it's, we're very cognitively oriented in the Western culture, meaning we're much more comfortable with logic and analysis than we are with really, with feelings and, and all of that's a little more mm-hmm. mysterious and um, uncomfortable. And so I think those are, are factors, but um, the dangers is there's a lot that's missed. When we, okay. um, when you and I were talking a couple weeks ago, um, one thing I mentioned to you is that each of our emotions, I mean, the things that we experience, pain, and, and is part of the just journey of life, there's wisdom in that. There's oh, things you'll to listen learn. to this. This is really good. Pay very close <laughs> attention to this. So um, one thing I mentioned to you is that there's things that pain can teach me or hurt can teach me that joy can't. Right. Um, and vice versa. I mean, there's things that joy, God wants to teach us through joy, but there's things that, that we can learn and ways we can grow through pain, and we will miss that if we um, don't allow ourselves to experience those things. And, and as a very good point of illustrating that is, if any of you remember the movie Inside Out, it was an animated film several years ago, and I won't go into the whole plot of it, but um, I do recommend rewatching it if you haven't. Um, but it's um, the main characters in the movie are presented as emotions. So there's a character named Joy and a character named Happiness and a character named Anger and, and so on and so forth. And, but one of the main plots of the movie is this character Joy wants to be in charge of everything. Mm-hmm. She wants to run the show because we should just be happy all the time. Like right. that's the, you know, that's the superior, it's, it's exactly what we're talking about. And the relationship between her and sadness is complicated uh-huh. in this movie that they, she doesn't like sadness. I mean, she's nice about it because she's joy, so, but really she just doesn't like sadness. She's kind of like, go stand she over there. She draws a circle yeah, and says, circle. you stand in this <laughs> yes, and don't she move. Some really firm boundaries around sadness. <laughs> and, but the movie, as it unfolds, what really comes out is sadness has something really important to offer. Right. And, um, and they have to kind of learn to get along with each other and, and make space for sadness because there's a lot being missed by sadness not having a voice. And so. Okay, so, so in spiritual bypassing, um, we're focusing on spirituality in a way that ignores reality, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That, that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So if we do that habitually, does that present danger to us in any way? It does. It okay. does. And um, so I'll share, like, I told you this example. It's sort of silly, but it illustrates the point. I say this, I use this example with clients all the time. Um, and this kind of partly goes back to what we're comfortable with in our culture. We're comfortable with um, things that are a little bit more tangible. So things like our five physical senses, all of us, I think, are generally accepting of our physical senses. We think right. it's good. We can see. It's good. We can hear. It's good. We can smell. Those are good things. Um, and each of those physical senses gives you a unique um, way of experiencing the physical world mm-hmm. around you. So my eyes tell me something about my environment that's different from what my ears are telling me, and et cetera, et cetera. So <clears throat> I would argue the same is true of our emotions, okay. um, but we don't usually think of it that way. So here's my silly example. Say if we treated our physical senses the way we treat our emotions, this would be the effect. So say you're at your house and you go and you put something in the oven and then you go in the other room to do something and a little bit later your nose starts to detect something unpleasant which smells like smoke and your ears start to hear something unpleasant which sounds like the fire alarm going off and you think, well, I don't like that smell, I'm just going to plug my nose. Or you think, I don't like that sound, I'm just going to cover my ears. Um, And let's just imagine you did that. I mean, no one would do that. That'd be ridiculous. But you'd sit there with your nose plugged and your ears covered while your house burns down around you. You would would never do that. But that's what we do with our feelings all the time. You think, oh, I don't want to be sad. I'll just ignore it. I'll push it over there. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to feel that. That doesn't sound Christian. I'll, I'll ignore it. And the result is we miss the wisdom that those things want to teach us, and, and there are, you know, consequences of that over time. Really good. I, I so appreciate you sharing that with us today. Absolutely. And, um, can I give her a hand? Thank you for sharing with us today. Thank you. See if my, mic, my mic just went out. I think every mic is going to go out one by one today, so I'll hang here, Brent. And if it keeps happening, we know it's spiritual warfare, so you know what to pray for, right? Okay. 
Um, listen, if you haven't yet, grab your Bible and, and find Romans chapter 8. And we're going to pick up right where we left off uh, last week. And we're going to talk a little bit about this thing, spiritual bypassing, that Amory is teaching us about. And how, in some way, we have not just embraced it, but we've made it a habit in our life in the modern American Christian church. Um, we're going to pick up in verse 18 where we left off, and we're going to see what God has for us, what we can learn about how to deal with suffering, and how we can hold in our hands at the same time these two things, the goodness of God and also groaning. And I'm going to read verses 18 through 28, and that's a long passage, but it's a very rich passage, and there's a lot there for us. One of the things that I realize when we come to this is that we live in this tension, and we talked about this last week. As children of God, we live in a a tension between what will be one day and what is today. And what I mean is, on one hand, we, we celebrate, we rejoice that God has brought us from darkness into light. And if you've had that experience of trust in Christ, you know what that feels like. And yet at the same time, you get up every morning, and we learned about this a couple weeks ago, you get up every morning and you're warring against sin in your own life. And both of those things are in play. And we celebrate, we think it's amazing that God blesses us in many ways each and every day. We probably miss more than half of the the little ways that God blesses us all throughout the day. And yet at the same time, we cry out in pain for the chaos and the injustice and the brokenness in this world. It's life in between the times. We, We have gratitude in our hearts, but frustration in our hearts at the same time. We find in verse 28, we'll see in a minute, that God is good and he's working all things together good for for us, for those who love him. And yet, sometimes in the middle of life being really tough and really hard, we're not quite sure what that good looks like. And God, I'm not sure if I have the same definition of good as you have. And so we live in, in this tension. And there's good news, I think, even in the fact that there is tension and that it's talked about in this text Because it reminds us that we don't have to spiritually bypass the trouble and the difficulty and the tension in our life. It tells us we don't, we aren't to just put on a happy face and grin and bear it, but instead we're given some direction for how to deal with it. And what Paul does is he puts on a real pastoring posture and he's going to help us to know how to deal with suffering and pain and disappointment in our life. And this is what you should be looking for as we read this text. What, Lord? What am I supposed to do when life is tough? And what have you given me? How am I supposed to deal with pain? And that's what we'll find here this morning. Look at verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen isn't hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. If you're somebody who marks in your Bible or you're able to mark up your Bible app, this is a moment to do so. If you're somebody who says, no, I have a rule. I don't write on the pages of the Bible at all. I might encourage you to break your rule today. I've got three things I want you to mark in your text. The first thing is the word groan. It's there three times, verse 22, verse 23, and verse 26. Go ahead and mark it, circle it, highlight it. Groans, groaning, and groan. Look at it there, mark it. The second thing I want you to mark is a phrase in verse 22. It's the phrase, 
suffers the pains of childbirth. Highlight that phrase in verse 22. Suffers the pains of childbirth. And then just one more thing. There are six occurrences of the word hope in this text. And then three occurrences of the phrase await eagerly. And that means the same thing as hope. So there are nine declarations of hope in this text. Go through there and circle all nine declarations of hope. Six times it says hope and three times it says wait eagerly. You get your work done? Okay, let's see what, what there is for us here. We're going to start with all of this groaning business. What's it all about? The first groaning that we find is all creation groans. This is all creation groans in verses 20 through 22. There's no place on this universe where there is not groaning. The, the very fiber of our beings, our bodies groan for the pain of today, longing for the freedom of tomorrow. And the over 40 crowd said, amen, right? And the under 40 crowd said, what? What is that? Is that going to happen? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But the interesting thing here is it doesn't just say all of the people in creation, all the created people groan. No, it says creation itself, the personification of creation. Creation itself groans. Take a look at that in verse 22. It's strange, for we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. Picture this. The earth, the trees, the sky, the mountains, the, the, all of the, the created being of the earth, all of the matter of the earth is groaning in pain for what is now and yearning for what will be. Verse 21, that creation itself wants to be set free from its slavery to corruption. So from all of history, from the beginning, starting with the fall until the end when Jesus makes all things new, including the new heavens and the new earth, the earth itself groans in pain for the condition that it's left in right now. And the condition is described like this in slavery in verse 20, 22 there, in 21, in slavery or in bondage to corruption. In the picture, you see it, you know this. I mean, you can, you can go outside and know this, that the earth is decaying. That the created matter of this planet is breaking apart, falling apart. And for one reason, because we're not very good stewards of the creation that we were given. It's one of our many fallings short of the glory of God that we have as humanity. And you don't hear a lot of sermons about ecology. I'm not going to give you a whole one today. But, but the fact is, when we all fall short of the glory of God, one of those ways we fall short is we're not good stewards of the earth that was made for us to take care of. And so it groans. It's falling apart. Physical matter is decaying. Bodies break. Minds break. Marriages break. Relationships break. Verse 20, for creation was subjected to futility. And that's another word for us there. We've got all these words. Futility, corruption, groaning, suffering. All these words that Paul is just piling up to describe how there is no place in the whole universe in which there is not groaning. It is an aspect of life in the sin mark brokenness of this world that you can't hide from you can't escape from no one gets a pass on the groaning that's the first groan the second groan is this verse 23 even we groan it says and this is this is huge I, I think for most of us we don't need to know how to groan nobody needs to tell you how to groan we just need to be given permission to groan we need to know that it's okay for us to groan and the permission's right here in verse 23 listen to it and not only this, but also we ourselves groan, having the first fruits of the Spirit. Maybe that's another thing to mark. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Verse 23 is here to say, even we Christians, even we who have no condemnation, even we who have the Holy Spirit, even we who are in Christ, even we who have all the promises of God being laid over our life, even we who God loves so much, we learned last week that he calls out and says, that's my kid. Even we groan. And there's permission for us to groan here. We groan in the already not yet of it all. Groaning, longing, yearning for the fullness of that redemption to be experienced. Now, these groanings are, I think, not just bad news, but I think they're a source of hope for us in this, that those groanings within us testify to us. They're a way of, of our souls speaking to the rest of us saying, this isn't the end of your story. There's more. The best is yet to come if you're in Christ. Verse 25 says this. 
But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait for it eagerly. There's more to come for us. What we find is that this is a biblical practice of groaning. And if you want to know how to have the biblical practice of groaning, the key is the phrase that you already underlined in verse 22. The key is suffers the pains of childbirth. That tells us these aren't death pangs, but they're life pains. They're birth pains. We're not groaning to death and groaning is an end in itself, but we're groaning to life. This is the biblical practice, the habit of lament. Have you heard the word lament very often? Like, like we hear about prayer even in pop culture, but we rarely hear about lament even in, in the church. And I think part of the reason that we don't talk about lament a lot is we're not sure that we understand the nature of lament because there seems to be a fine line between complaint and lament, right? I remember a few years ago, um, Justin and Kirk, who used to be here, we were talking about lament, and Justin coined a, a phrase. I don't know if you've trademarked it yet, but I'll give you credit just in case I don't want to get sued. But he coined the phrase, lament, like lament, because a lot of times we're just venting, not truly lamenting. And so I, what I want to help you see this morning is the difference between complaint or lament and lament. Complaint or lament, lamenting, it starts with me, the middle is about me, and the end, surprise, it's about, it's about me, right? But in biblical lament, there's a turning somewhere in the middle there. Michael Card wrote about this turning in his book, uh, Sacred Sorrow. He said, at some point in every lament... There is a turning point when the self, exhausted of its emotional energy, seems to collapse and turn from a position of I to a position of, of thou. So, lamenting starts with me, the middle's about me, and the end is, is me. It's about me being frustrated or in pain or suffering. It ends in that way. But biblical lament starts with me. The middle is about me, but somewhere in the middle it begins to turn. And it's not just about me, but I begin to look to God. And I begin to see some things differently. And he begins to work some things in me. And the end is, is not me, but the end is, is him. Because that invites God into our pain. It begins, to, it begins to trust God with our pain. Here's what, what Michael Card said in his book. He said, the act of lamenting, listen to this, the act of protesting, even the act of accusing God through the prayer of protest is still an act of faith. We see this in the Bible. It is the most costly demonstration of belief in God. Listen, despair is the ultimate manifestation of the total denial that God exists. Do you see that? What we're talking about is a dance or a wrestling with God. It is the path that takes us to the place where we discover that there is no complete answer to pain and suffering this side of eternity. Only the presence of God with us. Do you know there's a whole book of the Bible that is lament? What's it called? Lamentations. That was an easy one. Have you considered this, that the entire Bible from Genesis 3 all the way to the end when Jesus returns and makes all things new, the whole Bible from a perspective is nothing but lament. One big Bible lamenting that things aren't as they should be, but they will be in God's sovereignty. And what's lamented? Relationships are, are lamented and, and injustice is lamented and personal struggle is lamented and, and personal sin is lamented over and over again. What we find is that we're not given the instruction to put a, a Christian platitude or a glaze over the reality of our lives to bypass the, the torment that sometimes happens in our souls. We're not given examples to follow of people who are grinning on the outside but dying on the inside. In fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. Over and over again, think about Job. Job's a guy who, who refused to turn his eyes away from God even when there was death and destruction and isolation and confusion marking every single aspect of his life. He would say in Job chapter 3, I curse the day that I was born. He's being real here. In, in chapter 10, he would say, I will speak of my suffering. I will talk about all of my bitterness, and I will tell God all about it. And I believe that Job's refusal to hide that, to, to try to escape it, to pack it down and cover it up, 
but his, his like determined, I will be honest about all of the bitterness I have right now with God, it kept the door open to God. And it's what led him to then say things like, I know my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. I will see him with my own eyes. I almost feel like a groan should be inserted right there. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. Think about Hannah. Hannah's despair, her suffering, she wouldn't keep it to herself, but she would speak of it. She would share it. She would share it with the Lord. And it's in the sharing of it that she opened herself up to receive from God. And not only did it result in the birth of a baby, but the birth of a nation, We think about David, he's maybe one of the first people you go to when you think about lament in the Bible. David is a man whose story is marked constantly by lament. We're told in 1 Samuel that when he was in his wilderness days, in isolation and fear, when people wanted to kill him, when when he didn't know who he could trust at all, and he's sleeping in caves and and like just scavenging for his life, and yet he thought he was supposed to be the king, right? That's his story. And 1 Samuel says, and this isn't poetry here. This isn't just like, oh, let me give you a, a beautiful line to mark sadness. This is it's testimony, right? That he would weep until there was no strength left in him to weep. I don't know if you've ever been there before. Maybe you have. I would guess that you've experienced something like that in your life where it felt like you were so tired of being tired of being sad or disappointed that There was just nothing left in you at all. Psalm 63, David says, My soul thirsts for you, God. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And this is the way David lamented. He lamented not just the things that happened to him, but he lamented the things that were wrong inside of him. He lamented that he had hate for other people inside of him. He said, I'll be honest. Yes, I do have hate within me for other people. Lord, I lament that. I turn to you with that. I'll be honest about what's wrong in my life. He lamented his own foolishness, his own circumstances. He lamented decisions he made. He lamented that he had the inability to understand some days what was right and what was wrong in a confusing world and a confusing life. And in David, as he lamented, what he did is he laid out a welcome mat and he opened a door for God to enter into the suffering and the confusion and the disappointment and the, limita- the limitations of his finite you know, reality on earth. He welcomed God into that and began to trust God with the pain. Here's Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the guy who, who wrote Lamentations. When Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, he was personally lamenting. He was lamenting his own feelings and his own experience, but he was also lamenting for his entire nation. I want to show you. Will you put up uh, chapter 3? I want you to see this. I think this is as raw as it gets when it comes to a picture of real biblical lament. There's no covering up. There's no dressing up. There's no bows and pretty ribbons. He says, he, he's talking about God here, okay? He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Pause. Right? He's as low as it gets. And in this quiet moment where he's honest before God, the welcome mat's there, the door's open. I've lost all hope. It's in the quietness of this and in the practice, the habit of saying it out loud to the Lord, his soul begins to speak. Surely my soul remembers. Confession is coming up from within and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I do have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases for his compassions. They fail not. And he's preaching to himself because he he isn't feeling it, but his soul is speaking. Remember the faithfulness of God. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, God. The Lord is my portion. This says my soul. Therefore, and he's preaching to himself, have hope in God. Keep turning to God. Don't give up on God. Keep turning to God. He is faithful. He is steadfast. He will be my cup and my portion forever. All right? 
give you one more. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I think it really lays out the picture of complaint, lament, versus lament. Uh, Pull that one up real quick. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, this is lament, right? The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, the result of lament. Here's complaint or lament. But the sorrow of the world produces, somebody say death. It doesn't take you anywhere. It doesn't give you satisfaction. It doesn't help. It doesn't lead to life and peace, the things that God has promised, right? This is the difference between lamenting and lamenting. I want you to consider this. We, we cry out because we know that we have need, and we, we give our cries to God because we know deep down somewhere in our soul, like Jeremiah, God's the only one who really can help us. He is. You need to think about your emotions. Henry talked about joy and sadness and disgust and anger and all of these emotions. Sometimes, have you ever wondered, why did God give me the capacity for the, the ones that I think of as bad emotions, negative emotions? Joy drew a circle and told sadness to stand in it. Don't move, don't touch anything, be quiet. Why did God give us the capacity for even feeling these things? Why wouldn't he just give us the happiness, the joy things, and leave the rest aside? Well, one reason is because we are created in the image of God, and God, in real life, emotes. We're going to talk about God's emotions more in a moment, but it's a part of real life to have the, the whole fabric of the whole landscape of these emotions. But God has a purpose in giving you anger and sadness and disappointment and disgust. God has a purpose in giving you every emotion you have. With every emotion that you experience in this life, his purpose is that 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 emotion itself would drive you back to your maker. He made you, he formed you to have these emotions and these emotions would be triggers that would drive you right back to your maker and your, your good, good father. And so when you experience joy and delight, it should drive us back to him with gratitude and thanksgiving. And when we have sadness, it should drive us back to him, the only source of true comfort. And when we have anger, what does that drive us to? Well, it drives us to really know what is true, what is right, and what is just, and to lean into God for those things, that he would help us to have good anger, not bad anger. It would drive us to him to know what is right. And every emotion that you have, God has this purpose. He wants you to feel it, that you might go to him, and that might, you might have that emotion given his power, his wisdom, his righteousness, his holiness laid over those emotions and that he might be your source of strength and your source of comfort. Okay. Three groanings. The first, there's a groaning for creation, once more for the children of God, and then a third groaning in our text. Verse 26 and 27 says, even God groans. Even, even God himself groans. Look at verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Oh, of course, the traditional interpretation of this text simply is that when things are all jumbled up inside of my heart, inside of my life, inside of my head, and I really don't know how to put words to what I'm feeling, and I really don't know what it is I should be praying that the Lord would do in my life, that the Holy Spirit who is within me as one who is in Christ is helping, he's interceding, he's making sense of it all and bringing clarity to the prayers that I don't know how to voice. And that's true. That's good. It's a wonderful thing. But you'll notice that when you read what Paul's written here, he doesn't only use the word intercede, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He also uses the word and the characterization of groaning, just like he did with us and just like he did with all of creation. Groaning that things aren't as they should be in my life, but they will be in God's care and in his providence in my life. He's bearing my burdens. He's feeling my weakness. He sees where the gaps are and where the pain is, and he feels the pain with me, and he, he groans. He laments. And I want you to, to consider that, that God lamenting doesn't begin in Romans 8. God lamenting begins in Genesis 3. 
God laments in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve turn their back on him and don't trust him and say, we'll be our own Lord and our own leader and we'll go the direction that we wish to go. And God laments and it breaks his heart. He has the capacity for those emotions, right? We see in the Gospels that when Jesus came to earth, he lamented. When he saw what sin was doing to mankind, it broke his heart when he looked upon the devastation that sin was doing to people. Jesus lamented in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. He said, oh, Lord, would you take this cup from me if there's another way? But may your will be done, right? It's the heart of lament. And Jesus' final words in his humanity before he was put to death on the cross, before he gave up his spirit, it says, his very last words, what were they? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's lament. It's groaning in the pain and the suffering and the isolation and the sadness of that moment on the cross and yet not letting go of the promises that he, know, he knows are perfectly true in his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he gave up his, his spirit. Even, even God groans. Today, the Holy Spirit groans. He laments. He laments that things aren't as they should be in your life and in my life but that they will be in God's care and providence. And it's not a groaning to death. It's a, it's a groaning and a yearning for life for us. And what I'm learning in this is that stoicism is not a spiritual gift, but lament is a spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual discipline. What are other spiritual disciplines? Prayer, Bible study, confession, worship, Serving, these are spiritual disciplines, they're things the Bible gives us, they're habits that we're to practice, that we might grow in Christ-likeness, that we might have experiences of God's grace in everyday life, that we practice them day after day. Lament should be on the list. What if I pulled one of the other spiritual disciplines off the list? What if I took prayer away from you and the church never taught you to pray, never encouraged you to pray, we didn't do it with you, we didn't tell you to do it? What would be missing from your life and your walk in Christ? if you did not have the discipline of prayer or Bible reading? What if we didn't make a big deal about the Bible? We didn't teach the Bible every, every Sunday, but what we did is we just gave you some good thoughts for your week and told you to go home and read some good books and watch some good movies and have a good life. What if you didn't have God's words that you depend on day in and day out? What would be missing from your spiritual life? A lot. And I wonder what we're missing if we're not embracing and practicing the habit, the spiritual discipline of lament. I wonder what's left for us on the table that we just haven't experienced because we have never considered it to be a spiritual discipline. So I think it is a spiritual discipline. And you go, well, okay, if it's to be on the list, then how often should I be practicing lament? I don't know. How often should you be praying? How often should you be reading your Bible? I don't, I don't know. How about, how about lament? How about you practice it every day that you have consciousness? That, that would be a good kind of general standard. Every day that you have consciousness on, on this earth until Jesus returns, you practice lament as a habit. Sounds good. W what should I be lamenting? Well, again, I don't think I need to tell you what you should be lamenting, but we'll get the ball rolling. Look in the mirror. When I look in the mirror, I see a lot of things that I'm lamenting, right? Turn on the news. That will that'll give you a laundry list of items to lament, Lament the brokenness in this world. Lament everything that's not as it should be, but one day in God's providence will be. Lament any family member, any friend who is far from the Lord and doesn't know the sweetness, the goodness of God in their life to comfort them when life is tough and life is tough. Lament all of the people that you work with and that live in your neighborhood who are rooted in some world religion that will never, ever, ever end with life and peace with God. Lament that. If it doesn't break your heart, lament that. You know, we talked two weeks ago about a daily murderous war against indwelling sin in my life. Every day I'm repenting, I should be lamenting that I'm still repenting. Do you get the, what I'm saying here? How often? If you're conscious, you should be lamenting. What should I lament? There's all of it. There's, there's a lot to be, to be lamenting. What if we don't lament? What's the danger in us not lamenting? Saying, oh, well, that was a Sunday and it was weird and we won't talk about that again probably for another 10 or 15 years, so we'll just ignore that one, leave it off the list. Three dangers of not lamenting. The first is artificial faith. 
I think this is the thing that's plagued so much of American Christianity almost since its inception, artificial faith, where it's more of a culture or a subculture, it's a genre of life than it is a rooted dependence upon an honest relationship with God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit where we declare Jesus is king and we're being led by the Spirit like we've been learning in Romans 8. It's an artificial faith. It's wrapped up in cliches and platitudes and ideas of putting a grin on it, putting a smile on it, feel good, be strong, have convictions. It's moralism. It's, it's, it's an artificial faith not rooted in God. If we don't lament, if we can't get down to what's really going on and be honest about the troubles of this world with the Lord and invite him in, then all we've done is kept him about this far away from us. And our faith cannot become real. It cannot grow. Artificial faith, that's one danger. Another danger is, is identity confusion. If we can't lament, we're going to get confused about who we are because we're going to see promises. This is what verse 28 is about when it says God works all things together for good for those who love him. We have oftentimes an overreached eschatology, and that means we look at the future promises of God that are for then, and we try to apply them now. And when we, they don't now, then we come into all kinds of confusion about is God good or is he not? Am I a child of God or am I not? We can have an underreached eschatology where we don't understand what we have now, that we have the Holy Spirit now to help us, to guide us. We have the invitation to go to the throne of grace, as Mindy read earlier, with confidence to receive help in our time of need. If we have an artificial faith, if we don't get into the nitty-gritty, dirty, ugly stuff in life before God, we're not really going to understand who we are and who he's making us to be. And listen... If you have artificial faith and you have identity confusion, that's going to to lead to missional anemia because who on earth wants to go and propagate some message that really is just this thin veiling of nothingness in our life? It's just a, a wispy facade of spiritualism that hides or ignores reality in our life. Who wants to go and talk about that? That is not good news to be shared with anyone. And so if we can't get down and dirty with, and honest with the tough stuff in our life, with each other and with the Lord, and we're always hiding, we're bypassing that stuff in our life, we're going to look up one day and realize my faith isn't real. I don't know who I am, and I don't even, even want to talk about it anymore. I think that's why you see people today in American Christianity going, yeah, I don't think I'm a Christian, or I'm done with that. I think this is the reason why. These, these three things, their faith has never become real. They don't know who they are, and they have no desire for anyone else to know it. Now, I'm not speaking about this today as someone who has a master's degree in the lost language of lament, but as someone who is having his eyes opened, maybe for the first time, to how important this section of Romans 8 is for my life and your life. And that I have a gap in my spiritual disciplines that I don't practice regularly. I lament. I, I lament when I am, I've come, come completely to the end of myself and I'm so exhausted from trying hard to prove that I'm a good Christian. A good dad, a good husband, a good pastor. I lament when I have tried for a long time to prove that I can do it all. Do you know what that's called? It's called counter-gospel, anti-gospel, Right? The gospel is, I could never do enough. I could never hold it all together, so I turned to the Lord to do it for me. Verse 3 of chapter 8 that we've already studied, right? And yet my practice of lament is marked by me trying as hard as I can until I can't try any more, and then I give up and lament. And what we have here is an invitation that lament would be a regular part of our daily experience in the brokenness of this world. We live in the time between the times, and until Christ returns, we lament that it's not yet. And we lean into the day that he does come. I want to end with this. Um, I just, as I was learning from the Lord on this over the last couple of weeks, I began to write down six statements that I think really define biblical Christianity in a very poignant way, and in contrast to what maybe a lot of people think about Christianity, maybe it's what you've thought about Christianity, or maybe these statements really just bring assurance to what you have come to understand in your life. So I want to show you six statements that I believe define biblical Christianity. Number one, biblical Christianity is realistic 
about brokenness and weakness, and it doesn't hide from paradox. Number two, biblical Christianity embraces already, not yet, and trusts in, key word here, trust in God's ultimate plans and goodness. It's biblical Christianity. Third one, biblical Christianity laments the difficulty and suffering of this present day. and We have sold that short in our normal practice. Next one, biblical Christianity hopes with a hope that is sure in Christ. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4 says everybody in the world grieves. Everybody in the world suffers, but there are two ways to suffer. There are those who suffer with no hope, and there are those who suffer with hope. And there were nine declarations of hope in this passage about groaning. Don't forget that. Next one is biblical Christianity is, this is my favorite word of, of the decade, gritty. Biblical Christianity is gritty and honest, not sentimental and void of substance. And lastly, biblical Christianity is compassionate because it remembers that we're in this together. And every one of us is suffering something. Every one of us experiences pain. We all know the taste of disappointment. And biblical Christianity remembers that maybe, just maybe the way that God seeks to bring comfort and peace to you is through me, or to me is through one of you. And so we're compassionate because we're in this together. And if our Christianity doesn't look like that, I'm afraid that we're just putting on, putting on a happy face, playing it out. And I don't want to be a church, I don't want to be a person who lives out his faith like that. Can I pray for us this morning? Lord, I know I'm speaking from my perspective this morning and not for everyone in this room, but I, I do voice for everyone whose heart and life, their experience agrees with me. I lament my lack of lament and I desire to repent. Help me to see that this is one of the beautiful gifts and tools that you have given me to experience your grace and power in my life in the days until Jesus, you return for us. And Holy Spirit, thank you that I have the promise in this text, not just the permission to lament, but the promise that you do so with me, that you can lead me in the, the experience of lament, groaning with me at the pain and the suffering. And I pray that we would learn as a church from the pages of the scriptures to lament because without lament, we may not truly understand the depths of how far off we are away from what you truly intend for us or the heights of what glory lies ahead for all who are your children. So would you help us to move into that headspace more? Not so we'd be a sad, mopey people, but so that we'd be a trusting people who get to experience your grace and experience day by day renewing and transformation by your power. And we ask that you would do that for your glory and you would get every bit of glory for it, for our good and that we might shine brighter and brighter and people would be drawn to know the love of their maker. In Jesus' name, amen. 